0: Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, massive, shameless, and endlessly expanding war profiteering by weapons dealers. Our guest is Heidi Peltier, author of a new report called The Growth of the Camo Economy and the Commercialization of the Post-9-11 wars. Heidi Peltier is the director of the 20 Years of War Project at Boston University and part of the Cost of War Project at Brown University. She has written reports and articles on various costs of war, including the hidden costs of financing war through debt, as well as the opportunity costs of spending federal dollars on the war economy instead of on other domestic priorities such as health education or clean Energy Heidi Peltier, welcome to Talk Nation Radio.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for writing this report uh, briefly, can you tell us the topic?
1: Sure. Well, what I call the camo economy is military contracting. and so the the report looks at the growth in military contracting over the last few decades, particularly the growth since the uh, since September two thousand one. And I uh, outlined some reasons for the growth in the camo economy and some ramifications for the federal budget and for labor markets. So, the the notion, you know, kind of briefly, the notion is that privatization um, should lead to more efficiencies, should lead to lower cost. But actually, what we find is that military contracting has lead has led in many cases to greater costs. And the report looks at various reasons why costs are uh, excessive due to military contracting.
0: And, and you use the words commercialization and privatization in a particular way, right? It's, why is it commercialization?
1: That's right. We, we talk about privatization of government services, and there, w- there was a real push in the 70s and 80s to privatize government services that were not considered inherently governmental. Um, the idea being that private markets Would face competitive pressures, and these competitive pressures would drive private firms to uh, offer products that are of higher quality and lower cost. So the idea of privatization is that private firms can can produce more uh, cost effectively or efficiently than uh, than a a government monopoly. Um, But the problem with using the term privatization here is that a lot of the the camo economy, a lot of military contracting, doesn't really. Look like a private market. So there are, um, there's a a significant percentage of contracts that are non-competitive. Um, in 2019, 45% of DOD, Department of Defense contracts were non-competitive. And so these firms are more, uh, monopolies than competitive private firms. And so the, I use the term commercialization because these are commercial firms. These are not governmental units. Um, but they're serving a a public purpose. They're receiving public funds. Um, They're not subject to competitive private market pressures. Um, And so I think that the term privatization is is kind of misleading, and so I prefer to use the term commercialization.
0: People get the idea there's market competition benefiting something somehow, and there isn't. Um, But but you say inherently governmental. Where does uh, going and bombing foreign countries fall in that? Is that inherently governmental or not?
1: Well, that's a good question, and that's become a very fuzzy line when it comes to national security and, and fighting war. Um and you know the the, the privatization or commercialization of uh, you know some of military contracting that's been going on for many decades um, where we buy weapons and um, equipment from private firms, um, that doesn't the 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 procurement of the weapons and other equipment uh, is not necessarily inherently governmental, but when we're bringing, troops into battle and all of the services that are supplementing those troops um, the you know providing the food the lodging the fuel supply uh, servicing weapons on the battlefield when all of these are being done by private contractors or commercial contractors um, you have to wonder where is the line where the, the public sector uh, is uh, you know where the where government military personnel are defending the country or fighting the war on behalf of the country, and where the the private sector or the commercial firms are uh, taking on government responsibilities,
0: and and this is this is huge, right? You you document a hundred and sixty four percent increase in, in military contract spending from two thousand one to two thousand nineteen. How how much of that is is mercenary troops like Blackwater, and how much of it is what you were just describing, cooking and cleaning and fueling, et cetera.
1: Right. Yeah, so so the growth, I mean, we spend two and a half times as much on contractors as we did in in 2001. It was around 140 billion that we spent on contractors. Um now it's up to about 370 billion and that represents more than half of the Department of Defense budget um from uh in 2019. And um so the and, and all of that contracting is both for services and for uh, procurement of, of weapons and other materials. Um, but when we look at places like Iraq and Afghanistan, um, about two thirds of the contracting dollars are going to various services, um, and that's including services um, for firms like Blackwater and and uh, private security firms um, who are in some ways acting as soldiers. And uh, it also includes um, some of the things I mentioned, running dining halls and lodging facilities and fuel supply and all of that. So all of that together uh, is about two-thirds of what we spend on contractors in war zones.
0: And, and you call it the camo economy because it hides some things, right? It hides how many people are involved in a war and how many people on the, on the U.S. side are, are dying in the war, right? Right.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, I, it, it's not just that uh, the military wears camouflage, which is one of the reasons I chose it. But um, but I, I find that it's a really appropriate term because there's a camouflage of both the human cost and the financial cost. So um, it camouflages how many people are are going to war. We have um, in 2019 there were more contractors than troops in the Middle East. Um, the ratio is about 1.5 contractors to every one um, military service member, and it, con- it camouflages how many people are, are dead or injured as a result of the war. There's, you know, a great public recognition of service members who are injured or killed in duty, um, but not so much for contractors. And the, the Cost of War Project estimated that um, since 2001, um, about seven thousand u s service members have died, but eight thousand contractors have died u s contractors um, and so these are not publicly recognized figures, and so the the camo economy really uh hides some of the human cost of war and it also hides the financial cost because we 're not we don 't have the the transparency with where the contractor dollars are flowing. As we would if this were, these were public funds that we're seeing in um, in government accounts that were open to the public.
0: And it, it makes a huge difference, right? I mean, I can remember being part of, of peace protests during the, the years of, you know, 03, 04, 05, and so on, uh, where there was, a, you know, marking how many U.S. soldier deaths in Iraq, and, and, uh, and yet there were, and you know, not to mention hundreds of thousands that at some point, you know, well over a million... Other human beings, but but the there was no there were the the tr- the numbers for the contractors were missing in in all of that reporting and all of that that activism weren't they?
1: Yes, that's true. And um, because the focus is on the the publicly available data that we have through Department of Defense and through other public channels, but the 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 deaths and the injuries that happen for employees of contracting firms um, are not necessarily publicly released. Um, and yeah. so there, there's a lot that we don't know about the contracting economy and the, the people who are um, killed or injured in war.
0: And even if they're known to a media outlet, uh, it can still report on U.S. deaths and leave many of them out because they're not U.S. citizens or U.S. residents, right?
1: That's right. A lot of U.S. contractors will hire not only U.S. employees, but also host country nationals and third country nationals. So. They'll be, um, you know, operating in a theater of war, hiring, um, you know, bringing in some U.S. personnel, but also hiring people from that country and hiring people from all over the world. Um, And there was another paper in in 2017 through the Cost of War Project written by Noah Coburn that looks at some of the labor exploitation that happens there with underpayment and uh, human rights abuses and poor working conditions of uh, contractors hiring host country and third country nationals.
0: We're speaking with Heidi Peltier, whose new report is called The Growth of the Camo Economy and the Commercialization of the Post-9-11 Wars. Uh, On on the flip side, in terms of, of labor practices, with all this money and so little accountability, are war profiteers able to offer higher salaries than employers in other fields in the U.S. economy?
1: Absolutely, and that's one of the things I look at in the paper too. It's it's difficult to find detailed um, labor force or, or uh, personnel data for contractors because they are private firms, um, private in the sense that they don't have to release the kind of personnel data that we can get on federal employees or government other levels of government. Um, but I was able to find enough data to to. Uh, Draw some conclusions, and I looked at firms like Lockheed Martin, um, which is the biggest defense contractor, and KBR, um, Kellogg-Round Root, which has uh, done a lot of service contracting in the Middle East, and um, their wages are anywhere, looking at specific occupations like engineers and security guards, for example, um, or security positions, their wages are anywhere from 20% to 166% above uh, what those same occupations would pay in other businesses and, and within the military itself. Um, and if you look at, um, I was just recently looking at, uh, I, I posted something on inequality.org um, on this same issue looking at uh, salaries at Lockheed versus the, the average for the U.S., um, and it's at least twice as high, uh, the average wage at Lockheed is at least twice as high as the average wage, uh, or the median wage in the U.S. And so, what this does is contribute to greater inequality. And it, it it's a uh, you could think of it as a human capital misallocation. So, if you have talented engineers that uh, can earn a much higher salary by going into military contracting versus going into something like renewable energy or going into uh, you know infrastructure design, something like that that might be of um, social benefit to the U.S. economy, um, you have a a distortion in the labor market where there's a real pull by the camo economy, a real pull by, by military contractors, and that pull brings people away from the military itself and brings people away from other sectors that might be publicly valuable.
0: Does seem like a misallocation and a mistake in every way, shape, and form. Uh, what what has made this happen? Uh, I mean, you talk about some factors like it it reduces the use of the of the guard and reserve. What is the benefit in that?
1: Well, that's part of the the political usefulness of military contracting is when you can increase you can publicly declare that troop levels are diminishing, while increasing the U.S presence abroad through the use of contractors. So where, um, in the past reservists and, um, guard members might be called up to go to war, um, there'd be more public recognition of the number of people going to war. People in their communities would, would feel the loss of their family members or their friends going off to war, um, and there'd be more public recognition of the number of people who are fighting a war, whereas when, when an administration can publicly declare that we're drawing down troops, meanwhile they're replacing and supplementing those troops with contractors, um, we're, we're hiding the number of people who are truly at war.
0: And, and what role in making this happen is played by so-called campaign contributions and by the threat of removing jobs from congressional districts and by all the lobbying and by all the, the expensive ads for weapons where peace ads are not permitted, like in the Capitol Hill metro station and, and so forth? I mean, how, how much corruption of various sorts is involved here?
1: Right. There's all kinds of political connections that are um, vital to keeping this system operating as it is. Some are corrupt and some are are not. Um, But, uh, you know, firms like Lockheed and Raytheon and Northrop Grumman, like some of the big, the the top uh, defense contractors, um, last year spent about $13 million each lobbying. Um, So they have a real, and that's, you know, a, a drop in the bucket compared to the billions of dollars that they make in profit off of their, their contract. So there's a real financial incentive for them to, to keep the contracts coming. And, um, and that, in my opinion, contributes also to perpetual war um, because when, there's, when there are financial interests to stay at war, to keep, um, keep providing the services on the battlefield, um, there's going to be pressure to, to stay in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and other parts of the Middle East and North Africa. And there's going to be pressure to remain at war so that these contractors can continue to sell their services.
0: And and what role is played by the, the big revolving door through which Dick Cheney and so many other people stride and by the by the contracts for recommending more contracts that some of these contractors get?
1: Right. Um, and I don't go into this in detail in the paper, but I do mention, you know, Dick Cheney is a good example of, um, you know, rotating between um, uh, serving the Department of Defense and being the CEO of Halliburton and then um, right back into the administration. And there there certainly is a revolving door between uh, government officials who have a say in doling out contracts um, and working for the contractors who benefit from those very contracts.
0: Yeah. In, in, in some ways, it seems that you know contractor war spending is, is no more immoral or moral than non-contractor war spending, uh, except that if it costs more, uh, there is a problem in that we need the money for, for important human needs and environmental needs uh, that are very different from, from war spending of any sort, right?
1: that's right and i've I've made the case in in numerous papers that um war spending has a real opportunity cost meaning the the dollars that we're spending on war are not available to be spent elsewhere in the economy so i've looked um I've written a series of papers looking at um, if we had uh, how many jobs we could have created through sectors like education or healthcare or clean energy or infrastructure in comparison to um spending the, the, the spending on war and um, so there's a real opportunity cost in terms of jobs and just in terms of public priorities um, and contractors are a piece of that if we're um, if we're if we're spending too much on war um, that that's one diversion of resources from where it should be going. But if we're spending even more than we need to be spending, because we're building in layers of profit, um, in addition to um, waste and fraud and abuse that also are rife in the contracting economy, uh, we're, we're overspending on war. So it's not just we're spending too much on war compared to everything else, but we're spending even more than we need to be because there's this level of excessive profit, layer of excessive profit and uh, waste and abuse that's happening in the contracting economy.
0: Well, I will respectfully dissent from the notion that anybody needs to spend a dime on war, but uh, I, I want to ask about, because the cost of war project that you work for has done so many wonderful reports and put out so much useful information on the various costs of war. Uh, and and there's there's a figure that's been used so frequently that that sort of bothers me and I want to ask about it and 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 hopefully you can set me straight but it's it's always sort of disturbed me that when people calculate the costs of recent wars and and come up with a figure like 6.4 trillion rather than just looking at the entire cost of US military spending every year for the past 20 years why 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 take a fraction of it and and indicate that as the cost of war rather than the whole darn thing?
1: Um, well, again, yeah, um, it's a good question. One of the things that the Cost of War Project has done since its beginning in 2010 is um, to kind of put together all the parts of uh, the cost of war that aren't necessarily uh, publicly talked about. So, um, it's fairly easy to find out what the defense budget is and, and to look at their their base budget um, but one of the things that 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 6 point4 trillion figure that you mentioned that that's by um, uh, one of the co-directors of, of the project Nita Crawford and um, every year she has updated that and that includes um, it does not include the the base budget of the Department of Defense so so that that number would be even higher and this is what you're getting at that um, what that number includes is that the, the six point four trillion includes just the cost of war, and it would be even higher if we added the base budget for the Department of Defense. But just looking at the cost of war, that that six point four trillion looks at additions to the base budget. Um, it also looks at the the cost of operations themselves, the overseas contingency operations, OCO, um, so the operations um, strictly due to, to certain wars includes the cost of veterans' benefits. It includes the cost of interest that we're paying on the debt that we've taken on for the war. Um, it includes the future costs for the, the veterans um, that are being created now by the soldiers who are at war. Um, and so it puts all of these together. And, um, and the number, you know, as you said, would be even bigger if we included the, the base budget. But um, it was important for the project to have a number... Um, That was specifically war costs, that if we were not at war, had we not been at war for the last nearly 20 years now, um, that's $6.4 trillion that we wouldn't have spent, even if we maintained just a kind of steady state Department of Defense, um, without... Uh, demolishing the Department of Defense, which would, would save even more, but just the war is $6.4 trillion.
0: Yeah, I think that's very well explained. I think part of my concern is with how people take that number and use it, and they use it as the cost of, of U.S. militarism, whereas it actually seems to normalize you know, Pentagon spending as being for something other than war or preparations for war because it's left out of the costs of war. Uh, and, and if you could take the Pentagon budget and add in the nukes in the Department of Energy and, Homeland security and State Department military spending and all the rest of it—it uh, it would be much higher. I would—I would love to see the—the the total figure popularized so people, people recognized it to the extent that the six point four trillion dollar has been so successfully uh, spread around. Um, but, but I, I just wanna ask about your thoughts on what's actually happening now in Congress, uh, because uh, they're expected uh, in the coming weeks to be votes in both houses of Congress on moving uh, 10% of the Pentagon budget out uh, to be spent on more useful things. Uh, and there's a resolution in the House uh... to move three hundred and fifty billion dollars out that's got a, a couple of dozen co-sponsors uh... what do you make of these developments
1: i think it's a fantastic development and um, uh... the national priorities project actually has detailed um, where three hundred fifty billion dollars could come out of uh... the department of defense budget through uh... things like reducing um Nuclear weapons, and and they have a very detailed uh, description of how to reduce war budget or the military budget by three hundred and fifty billion dollars. Uh, I think it's it's an excellent direction that Congress is taking to be considering this. Um, and I think the the global pandemic has made us realize um, in a way that people were um, uh, you know not really paying attention to the the federal budget. Um, I think it's made us realize. It's made uh, you know the general public realize that um, we are not correctly prioritizing our federal spending. That we are not cr- correctly prioritizing where our tax dollars go. And one of the places that we can um, make cuts in the federal budget to enable things like more spending on public health, for example, or more spending on climate change. Um, one of the places we can make cuts is the military budget
0: yeah and uh and one easy way to to get a big chunk of that savings would would be simply by ending the current wars wouldn't it
1: absolutely absolutely
0: um there, there. You know, about a hundred years ago in this country, there was there was some shame in making money off of wars. I think there there was some element of of shame to profiteering, uh, from war. And there are now movements around this country, as elsewhere in the world, to try to to get local governments and other institutions to divest, to take their public dollars out of investments in in weapons and and war contractors. Is that is that a good approach? Is that a useful step uh, and ought there to, again, be, be some shame in profiting from war?
1: Um, yeah, that, that's just from my personal opinion. Um, yes, I think it's a good approach and that, no, we shouldn't profit from war, that if wars must be fought at all, um, it should be something in the public interest and not in the private interest. And when you mix something like profit-making with a, a public purpose, like keeping the nation secure. Um, I'm not making an argument right now that the wars in the Middle East are making the nation secure. Uh, I want to be clear that I'm not making that argument. But um, if if the, the government were to spend dollars to make the nation secure, um, that's a public purpose that pr- the profit motive should not be interfered with because that, that um, conflates why we're doing what we're doing.
0: Uh,
1: it, it conflates the... the um, the incentives for staying at war versus the, the need to, to maintain some kind of security. And, you know, security in my mind is not security that comes through weapons. Um, that, that may be the case for, for some people. They may hold that belief. But um, I think there are all kinds of security that we need to be paying attention to um, and forms of security that have become much more relevant and noticeable recently, like housing insecurity and security and Uh, economic insecurity, food insecurity, and that those are much greater priorities than uh, fighting wars in the Middle East that, in fact, are not making us any more secure.
0: Uh, absolutely. In fact, endangering us. That We've got about two minutes left, um, Heidi Peltier. It, it, with these weapons companies that are making these huge profits from these huge monopolistic contracts, a lot of them are also selling weapons to dozens of other countries, governments around the world, dictatorships, so-called democracies. And the U.S. State Department puts a lot of effort into making those sales, acting as sort of a, a marketing firm for some of these companies. Is that also a, a public? Public cost for private benefit—that that we should be concerned about.
1: I do think that yes, it is. Um, that's not something that I've done work on personally. Um, Transparency, and excuse me. Transparency International has a couple great reports looking at arms sales and corruption. Um, but uh, that that is uh, a fact of you know the, the the U.S. State Department helping to create arms deals. Um, selling, you know, helping private companies or commercial companies sell their weapons abroad, um, and you know, we we know from history that that has backfired. That they've brokered sales to, to to groups that, in the end, you know, turn around and use them against us. So, in addition to it being a national security threat to to do things like that, it's um, it could also be seen as a, a misuse of public funds and uh, public purpose
0: very well said I wish we could go on but we're out of time our guest has been Heidi Peltier whose report uh, we will have a link up at talknationradio.org you can also find it at Cost of War Project it's called The Growth of the Camo Economy and the Commercialization of the Post-9-11 Wars Heidi Peltier is Director of the 20 Years of War Project at Boston University and part of the Cost of War Project at Brown University Heidi thank you very much for coming Coming on Talk Nation Radio.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org. All past shows can be heard at talknationradio.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a non-profit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is supported by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to Peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.